0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy and cool day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme I'm delighted to be joined by Julian David. Julian is the CEO of Tech UK, the UK's Technology Trade Association and he is also the Vice President of Digital Europe. Um, Julian, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having
0: me. It's a real pleasure to welcome you onto the show. Um, Normally, we would dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it has sort of blighted the whole year, really. And I'm sure you'll agree as well, for leaders in all walks of life, it has proven to be one of the greatest challenges of our time. But how has it affected you and your business operations?
1: Well, it's Transformed us, uh, and we've had to transform to cope with it. Uh, not just for ourselves, but if, if you uh, if you recall, Scott, we are, of course, the trade association representing 850 companies in the digital technology sector. Mm. So we've also had to think about them and what they are doing and how they are reacting to the crisis and and the, the subsequent ongoing uh, recovery and reinvention.
0: And it's been something of a watershed moment for technology, hasn't it? Because all of a sudden, our reliance on technology has increased and the demand for such services such as sort of Zoom, Microsoft Teams, those sorts of applications has essentially gone through the roof, hasn't it? So it's been a very interesting time.
1: Well, it has. And of course, um, those services are the ones people see but they run on lots of other technology as well. So you've got mm-hmm. all of the, the the telecoms networks, you've got all of the devices, all of the uh, software that keeps things running, all the people that keep things running, the engineers. You know, you see these guys in high-vis vests, sort of they halfway in a hole in the in the pavement. And what they are doing is making sure that those connections work so you can have your Zoom conversation with grandchildren, granny, or a business uh, call or place an order or have a medical uh, online uh, interview or or, uh, or consultation, so all of that stuff is what we had to do, and and we approached mm. it in in really three phases, Scott. Which was the first one was obviously respond. So how how do we both ourselves as a, as our, our small company of sixty five people who service the industry? How do we go completely online? What do, what what do we do? In order to still be able to deliver that value, but also how do we look at what our members are doing? The second thing then was that How do you change business models? How do you change practices? How do you, you react to that? And then the last bit, as as I've said, is now how do you then reinvent and recover? And in particular, obviously, apart from the medical crisis that we've all faced, we've now got an economic crisis to deal with as well. So yes, mm. it's been it's been it's been amazing. It's it's been a, a big challenge also somewhat reassuring that more or less the UK's technical infrastructure has coped, has survived, and we have been able to keep large parts of the economy and virtually all of society still working, still connected.
0: Mm. It's played an incredible role, hasn't it, technology in keeping the country running during this time. And from the experience of having to adapt to this new reality, Julian, is there anything that you would say that you've actually learned from all of this?
1: Oh, a lot. I mean, if you're, I do believe as a leader, if you're not learning every day, then you're missing part of the point, which is leaders must also understand uh, how to get leadership from the team members and the people they work with and from others. And so the things that we've had to learn are, how do you actually manage a team remotely as opposed mm-hmm. to managing it with, with, you know, with interaction in, in, in an office or in other ways? How do you provide facilities for people who have a variety of home environments? The first step, obviously, is making sure that connectivity was there, that access to applications, access to all of our business functions was there. That was, that was something of a challenge. I mean, you know, we are in the tech industry, so you'd think we would be in reasonable shape. Um, but there's a lot of stuff you've got to do. But when you've got the tech sold, you then got to start to think about people. So we put a lot of things in place early on. Uh, just to make sure that we still functioned as a team, all that daily interaction, all that sort of you know the coffee chats, the lunchtime things, just going to places together, all all of the visibility uh, how do you replicate that in online environment so So we put things like morning you know morning calls, almost a morning assembly, so just to say hey we are we are in business, we are together, let's just have a chat. We put a buddy system in place which I participated in as well uh where you know and we swap these buddies around over time, so people have a chance to talk about you know cricket or football or or, uh, or or needlework or or whatever they were interested in as well as uh, the uh, the work context and we put in some fun things um you know quiz quiz afternoons and virtual get togethers uh et cetera et cetera now the technology does help with this, but the other thing you've got to remember is get people away from the screen from time to time as well. So one of the things we are looking at is, you know, how do you make sure people take a bit of time away from the screen? Because it's, it's very convenient to be working from home. But on the other hand, that, that uh, laptop screen, that phone can be a constant nagging presence. So how do you, how do you also keep a bit of family place and space?
0: Mm, it's incredibly important isn't it that we essentially don't let the lines between the workplace and home essentially be blurred from this whole thing because within leadership and of course the challenges of leading from a distance mental health and well-being is incredibly important and that's been thrust back into the limelight by the whole pandemic situation as you rightly said there julian for sure
1: yeah absolutely and you know You've got to remember, the first thing you've got to understand is try and understand more about your team. And strangely, actually, and I've had this conversation with a number of leaders in our industry, uh, being on Zoom calls or Teams calls or, or whatever it is, you, you do get a little insight into people's lives. You also learn to accept you know, that the, the, there are other things than just the work person. So it's no big deal if somebody comes into the back of their call and says dad where did you put my boots and things like that you know or the dog comes in or whatever uh, the doorbell rings they get to get up and answer it that, that's just life so so relax we also have more confidence now that you can trust uh, you know that the people working from is not a do back day people actually can be productive mm. but also you mustn't get too carried away with it there's still a lot that humans need in terms of a, a reaction they get a lot of leaders saying we need a hybrid. So. You know, we're going to actually need to have people be able to get back to the office when they can, or or if they're in a, another workplace where they don't have that option. We have to work out how to live with the virus or overcome the virus, um, but also manage now the mixture of online and, and physical environment. And you mentioned uh, the, the mental stress, uh, and that's very important. It's also very important to pay attention to inclusion at this time. You know, there there's some people take to the online world very well, others don't. So you can have silent struggles going on. You really need to be listening and watching out for that. And again, that's something that, that we paid a lot of attention to. So, this a lot of this starts, in my opinion, with do you have the right vision for your business? Do you have the right uh, missions that you're trying to do, the right purpose? You know, I think these days, and particularly when you have something that's, you know, as, sort of uh, shocking as a pandemic, people do start to ask themselves, what's the purpose of of my organisation? So Mm. you need to be clear about that. And then, have you got the right values underpinning it? And this is something where I do think we were well prepared at Tech UK, because in each of those areas, we put quite a lot of thought into that, and we have got the vision that we're trying to do. We are there in order to improve lives through the use of digital technology. We are there to represent what comes next so that people can understand the impact of technology, but they also can engage in what are the challenges and opportunities. And our values are very clear in terms of how we want to behave as an organization, how people join us expect to behave with each other, with our members, with stakeholders, and in their lives in general. And those values, we put, we put those together from the team. Uh, and it's very, very important, I think, that we do connect the team and then you keep checking the values. We've recently done quite a lot of work now looking at inclusion. You know, Are, are we as inclusive? As an industry, we certainly aren't uh, as inclusive as we could be. Uh, as an organization, we believe we have to set leadership there. And we have to engage to see how can we open our industry up more. Well, you mentioned, Scott, this whole point about um, what – you know, the importance of digital, we've done some surveys here, and it's so brought home to everybody. They need digital skills and they need mm. digital access. They need to be part of the digital economy and the digital society. And that's what really drives us to Tech care. Is how can we make that happen? How can our members make that happen? So everybody gets a benefit, people, society, our economy becoming more digital, but also not forgetting our planet and a sustainable future again the pandemic does bring that home you know mm. we need to live in a sustainable way in a sustainable world
0: It does hit home all of those things, doesn't it? The importance of addressing the digital skills gap, the importance of doing things sustainably. You are absolutely right. And one thing that I've seen that leaders have really stepped up to the plate and done during this time is keep people reassured and keep people inspired and motivated during such a difficult time. But when you are the leader at the top of the tree, where is it that you tend to sort of draw your own inspiration from during a crisis like this?
1: Yeah, I I mean... It comes from the job, really. If 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 you are the leader, then there is necessarily some part of this where you know you you have to be the person, the individual, the woman or the man uh, that's making the call, that's deciding this. And I think you know where I get my inspiration from. Uh, first and foremost, you can get an awful lot of inspiration from the team. There's no there's no there's no avoiding, and I don't seek to. At the end of the day, I have to make the calls. I have to share the vision. I have to, uh, to be the leader. But I do think that every leader can get a lot from their team. And if you get the right approach and the right way of working with team, so much value comes from the team. And it's not just about um, you know, techniques like delegation or whatever. I think it's just enjoying the team and being, you know, be, being proud of them and having that. That's, that's a good sense check, and that helps a lot. Clearly, you also though need some people that you can talk to about things. And that's where I think a circle of people that you're talking to obviously family. Uh, I get an awful lot from my wife. I get an awful lot from my children. I get a lot from neighbours and friends. One of the things you have to watch out for, though, I think as a leader, is we all tend to have groups of people that we get on with particularly well. And if those people are all like us, then actually you can end up with a family board. And, And actually the online world makes that even more likely. So the other thing I do try to do is make sure I talk to people who aren't like me, don't do the sort of thing I do, or maybe younger than me, uh, from different demographics to me, different opinions in, in many areas. Challenge yourself a bit and understand that. Open yourself up. There's been a lot of discussion about that, and I really think that's very important. And then lastly, you know, when you're thinking about leadership, it, it is a good idea to try and think about people of his spiral. people have done something different. Um, I mean, I've, I've got sort of three leaders that, that I'm particularly uh, interested in thinking about. Well, the first one is Ernest Shackleton, and, and, and that story of how, you know, he, he led his team to what was uh, you know, a very, very difficult position, and then he took responsibility for getting them out of it. You, could, you can see that story, and the fact that they believed in him kept them going through some really tough, situations. And then you've got somebody like Nelson Mandela who, you know, who came from a, a terrible situation but understood what he needed to do is to reconcile communities. And I also think in the present day, a lot of really great female leaders uh, are particularly uh, impressed by the kind of things that Angela Merkel does. Very low-key, very it and since she gets, she often gets, you that know, people say, well, you know, she takes a long time to make her mind up and she doesn't take extreme positions. And you think, well, that's not a bad leadership profile. And you can see, you know, success from that uh, that kind of approach.
0: You certainly can, Julian. There's so much to take away from those three examples there and a lot for the younger generations of aspiring leaders that may also be tuning into this as well from uh, that that you've just mentioned. Um, just before we do wrap things up um, on the programme uh, this morning, I do want to talk about the uh, the future because I'm conscious that we are short of time. Um, I understand, um, of course, and we all understand that we're going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal as it's being built until we have a cure or a vaccine, hopefully for coronavirus in the future. But over the course course the next 12 months as we are still very much adapting to that what is next for yourself and for tech uk and where indeed do you see the organization being this time next year
1: well we we very much see digital as being the absolute core of how the uk and indeed the world responds to this and we do think that we've got two or three responsibilities which have grown in importance. I do think opening our industry up, making sure that everybody has a chance to benefit from digital technology is the primary objective. It's also what we need because we need the skills and we need resources to drive the digital economy as we go forward. I think the second thing is we've actually got to have a, a, a global view of things. And I think that we are putting more and more um about focus now and looking around the world looking at all of these big agendas we've got coming up in the uk of course cop26 a great opportunity for the uk the shadow leadership and if, if the if the pandemic has shown us anything is that we need to have a flexible economy we need to be digitally enabled and again we see that as a, as a a real big challenge but a real big opportunity going forward. And we've got to make sure that technology is responsible. We've seen, I think, the benefit of digital technology through this year. And I think we can capitalize on that and we can build on that so that digital technology really is for good, really is all, really is inclusive, and really is productive in how we recover our economy
0: certainly is going to be an interesting time for technology, Julian, and I'll very much be keeping my eye on uh, the work that Tech UK is doing over the course of the next year. And I actually think it would be wonderful, in fact, given how enlightening it's been having you with us today, to catch up at some point in the next 12 months and welcome you back onto the show just to see how things are coming along.
1: Thank you very much, Scott. I would love to do that. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit today.
0: I'd certainly I welcome
1: to listening to the other, the other leaders that you're talking to.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, it's um, the mission of the Leaders' Council, of course, to chronicle the realities of British leadership, particularly during a time such as this. And I would most certainly be happy to welcome you back onto the programme in future. Um, most importantly, Julian, until we do hopefully speak again, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world too. Thank you very much. You too. I'd also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today. Do please be considerate of others and look after yourselves, because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, next up on the program today, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeff, during his professional football career, scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. But of course, he remains most renowned for the fact that to this day he is the only man to have ever scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. That is of course coming up next. And now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
2: Good morning, how are you?
0: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
2: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely, thunderstorm. It's, uh, it's lovely.
0: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022, and it's the World Cup final, and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans. Anybody, and England are two 0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
2: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I, I've asked that question, I that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs and England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So i am not wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely... I will be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my achievement. Uh, my achievements. about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team.
0: Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time, and there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you
2: yes I think people um, I, I've, I, t- I I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee Uh 10 yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving, play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game's nearly, fi- I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left, but I'm thinking if it goes beyond, the, beyond the sand into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to, uh, Hans Pilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which tried, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two
1: hours.
0: And it this goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
2: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. Sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk. In a sense, because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going uh, to an element of, of, of risks uh, of making. It. but has got to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks. In all mm-hmm. walks of life, an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances, I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
0: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the england national team once again who were going to the european championships but that's in a way now been replaced by the national health service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbow is very much in the same vein that you'd see the george cross adorning most households during a major tournament year do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966
2: Oh, absolutely! Particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing, and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for for what they were going through. And I think it's it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough enough funding for it, and and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital in uh, important says to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you Union 2 to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. and uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people that, um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembering exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that Who's been around a long time would still say he is he's the best coach he has worked with, and this is that's fifty years having been in the business plus, and then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager, uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he as a as a, a coach of a League One club uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined moved from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach got who is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to our who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country, you're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot all over, different character strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Oh yes, I think that, yes, I think leadership leadership's important, and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have, have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like that was a really stupid thing today, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it. continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers
0: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier. Even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
2: <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, so that was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac; it's not a big, long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, in as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used had to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making bows wood gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined. this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh well you were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbors falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true
0: and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
2: Well, my father was obviously the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We'd, we'd have, I was born in Ashton Lyne. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- Probably, I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third Golden World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved, moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelsea, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother. Didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. Yeah, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He he, um, And what happened with my my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school-leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that uh, that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre half Harvard School. Um, he... Uh, Tell him I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
0: And I suppose, as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Eggbirth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
2: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game that sort of messing about but t- t- between the two, I had uh, one first class game for Essex, uh, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and nought and not out. I think so, I mean we won the game. Funny, I were a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v. Lancashire up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when uh, even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap, and I'm still playing cricket until September, Essex pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for Mm. a big field player. So um quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season. Three years before the World Cup.
0: what was Gordon like as a leader on the field?
2: Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... i when when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago. And they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered lovely lovely man the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet but he was a joke he always had a, a, a joke for you every time you met sometime he would have a new joke and uh people um, talk about him and are uh, close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was and they're the two things that really stick out for for banksy and we were very lucky very lucky of course to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a, a world-class player when you win a World Cup. You need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, put in, in the squad. And Ray Wilson, our left-back, I always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, To be successful at that level, to compete in their level, and discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Wadding saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit undisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players. I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain, uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But i compare him purely on ability, compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm-hmm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
0: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England?
2: Um, well, I think Ireland was just a sort of with Cork Celtic. so It's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that, we, that was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with home City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club, they won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there, mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final, so it was a, a marvellous time. For, for that particular club and very close we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe I think we only lost on a goal over, two, over the two games against Ajax so it was a great time for the club so I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think as, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I, was, I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge. And I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success that club had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, uh, two daughters. And, uh, oh, I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It was completely different. Ireland was just... A, just, uh, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think, a month, I think it was. And I uh, enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid. And I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. It's <laughs> new kitchen.
0: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as, in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career?
2: Yes, yeah, so I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when. Um, uh, and I always joke with people. Introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend, and, and I always jokingly say. You, You only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, 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 whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years, not not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during my my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up to. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably.
0: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
2: Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes have natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, because I take it into my, my business life and even my uh, talk to my family life if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out, and I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be. They wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
0: And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
2: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes.
0: So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.